We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this week we'll be talking about well the international games that are going on including games with mexico and germany and netherlands and more uh our mls roundup uh including the interesting ben olsen situation Project Big Future, if you don't know what that's all about, we will be talking about that. Adam Sandler, and so much more. But first joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, October 12th in the year 2020? I'm doing well on this Monday, October 12th, the morning after the Los Angeles Lakers won either their 17th or their 12th NBA championship. Uh, Alexi, the world needs your ruling on this. Okay, lay it on me. Lay it on me because I have no clue what the hell you're talking about. Okay, the Lakers used to be in Minneapolis, and the Minneapolis Lakers won five NBA titles, and then the Mm -hmm. franchise relocated to Los Angeles, and folks in Los Angeles feel like that history transfers over, and so... That's significant because if you include the five championships won in Minneapolis, then this would be the Lakers 17th NBA championship, which would tie them with the Boston Celtics for the most all time. But Boston Celtics fans like to point out that no, 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 no. When you relocated, you, you, you start from scratch again. The Minneapolis Lakers won five and the Los Angeles Lakers have now won 12. So you're still a long way from the Boston Celtics, who won seven, have won 17 NBA titles. Well, at the risk of complimenting uh, the folks from Boston, which I'm loath to do, uh, they are absolutely 100% correct. I cannot think of two more different places, by the way, than uh, you said it's Minneapolis or just Minnesota. Were they the Minnesota Lakers or the Minneapolis Lakers? Uh, let me look that up. Oh, my God. How do you not know this? Well, it doesn't matter. Either way. There's no more different places than Minnesota slash Minneapolis in Minnesota and Los Angeles. You move, it's a whole new ball game. You start from scratch, even if you take the name, even if you take the branding, which obviously uh, the name at at least they took. So yeah, uh, I guess the Lakers then have a long way to go before reaching uh, the lofty heights of the, uh, the Celtics organization, which... I think, started and remains there uh, with my limited sports and NBA uh, knowledge. But congratulations to the Los Angeles Lakers. They are the 2019-2020 NBA champs, LeBron James. I do know that the the debate now this morning is, is if he is the greatest ever, 
Uh, and obviously Jordan would have something to say about that, as would Wilt Chamberlain, I'm assuming, with what I've read and what I can discern out there from the, uh, the interwebs. The interesting thing there is ESPN's original plan was for that last dance documentary to air during the NBA Finals. And I'm mm. sure they envisioned it being this scenario where on the one hand, we're watching uh, this documentary, documentary about Michael Jordan and his greatness, parallel to LeBron James leading the Lakers to the NBA title. And it would have made for this fun sort of back and forth. Instead, obviously, the, the pandemic happened and, and they moved the uh, showing of the documentary up. So it turned into, although I liked The Last Dance, it did turn into this 10-week Michael Jordan infomercial uh, where everybody was just dunking on LeBron and how, how dare anybody compare LeBron James to this guy. And it was interesting then that now LeBron James got sort of his own stage to kind of state his case. And so it sort of played out a little bit differently than ESPN uh, envisioned. But nevertheless, it's kind of interesting that in the same year that we had that sort of that last dance documentary, LeBron then leads the Lakers to the title. And so, yeah, it just sort of uh, makes the debate even more uh, fun. Wow. Wow. David Mossier, LeBron James apologist. <laughs> that's what well, you took out of that. <laughs> yeah, that's all I took about, out, of, uh, out of that. Uh, what else, Mossy? Speaking of watching stuff, uh, you watch anything interesting uh, this week? I did, and I, I, I actually made a list of some things that I watched. But uh, first to you, did you watch anything? I'm still on this podcast documentary tip. I listened to this uh, podcast on the uh, rise and fall of David Duke. And also I've started one on called British Villains, which is on Luminary about this famous uh, train robbery in London in 1963. On the TV documentary front, I haven't started either yet, but I definitely will this week. There's a new true crime doc on Netflix called American Murder, which is getting a lot of buzz. And also I very much want to watch your perfect crime one about the German reunif reunification uh, and all that. So bo both those are, are on the list this week for sure. I will knock those out. It, it is good. I actually got a, a tweet a little earlier today about somebody who, on our recommendation, uh, did watch it and uh, enjoyed it. Luis Aguilar chimed in on our, uh, on our Zoom. He says, uh, the team moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1947, and its name was changed to the Lakers to reflect the Minnesota State nickname. Well, obviously, and but they just kept the Lakers when they moved to Los Angeles. And I can tell you, as you can, Mossy, that there's not a lot of lakes when it comes to Los Angeles, but, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep. By the way, this is not Luis looking this up. In addition to his love for French philosophy, he's also something of an NBA historian. So he just knew that off the top of his head. And what you're seeing there is he, just... I mean, I, and I call you the savant. Yes. Uh, okay. So here, here are a couple uh, recommendations. Well, I don't know if they're recommendations. Uh, they are reviews because they're not always positive. So I, well, a recommendation can still be you should not watch this or this is not a good, uh, good thing. All right, so three things uh, that I watched this week that were of interest, at least to me. You know, the whole Adam Sandler phenomenon is, is something that will be studied by future generations to come to understand how and why this came to be. The man is a genius, whether you, whether you like him or not. He continues to put out product that people enjoy. Not all people, but enough people to make it worthwhile and to pay him a tremendous amount of money. So his latest uh, movie is uh, called Hubie... Hubie Halloween, which is on Netflix, it is a hot mess, okay? And yet I was just reading an article about how it's one of his most successful to date. So whatever he touches turns to gold. This whole voice that he uses and is used in a number of movies, I don't under, quite understand how he comes to the decision to use it or not to use it in, in a movie. And you know the voice that I'm talking about. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't recommend it. It's it, it's not very good, but there's a lot of people watching that. Uh, the second one, and this has been around for the last uh, couple of weeks, I think, uh, just came online, is over on ESPN and the four-part Oscar Pistorius 
documentary about the Blade Runner and the trials and tribulations, literally the trials um, when it comes to him uh, after uh, going on trial and ultimately being uh, found guilty of, uh, of killing his um, his then girlfriend, and that you know that's that's always been fascinating. I've watched a bunch of documentaries about it, and this is another one. It's a little long; it's four episodes. It probably didn't need to be four episodes, and it very much is coming from his side of the story. Um, and I don't know if that was intentional, uh, probably intentional, but I just know how that all all came about. It'd be interesting to see some behind the scenes stuff of that. And then the third one that I have, which may be right up your alley, Mossy, uh, is over there on HBO. And it's called Wild Card, The Downfall of a Radio Loudmouth. And it focuses in on Craig Carton, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I know you're a big uh, radio and sports radio and obviously New York guy. And so you would know it and many people would know it from the Boomer and Carton show um, that, you know, was the popular and the most popular sports radio show for about a decade in uh, New York and nationally, because it was probably uh, syndicated out there. And the downfall of uh, this guy, Craig Carton, who uh, got into incredible problems when it came to gambling and ultimately went to, uh, to jail. But it is interesting in this world that we live in and in the, the shock jock uh, and the provocateur and the hot take type of world that we live in to see this story play out. So I do recommend uh, that one on HBO. Do you know who I'm talking about of here? Of course, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in New York listening to that radio station, WFAN, because of the Mike and the Mad Dog radio program, which was Mike Francesa, right. our former Fox Sports colleague, briefly there, and uh, Christopher Mad Dog Russo. Uh, so the, the Cardin Esiason show was a, a little bit after my time of when I wasn't really regularly listening to that station anymore. But nevertheless, I was well familiar with it. And yeah, this was a crazy scandal. And so I, that's another one on my list. I definitely will watch that at some point this week. All right, so enough of our watching habits. There's still plenty of uh, soccer to get to. Uh, we are in the midst of an international break, but just because it's a break, it just means the break from uh, the club and league schedule. But the soccer goes on. Plenty of international stuff to dig our teeth in, which is where we are going uh, going to start, a including actual games, not just friendlies, but actual games that mean something and have significance when you talk about the uh, UEFA Nations League and that kind of stuff. Masi, there's so much. I, I don't know where to start. Where would you like to dig in? Uh, why don't we start in Europe, where okay. there are two different things going on, Euro qualifying still, and also the Nations League. Uh, and as far as Euro qualifying, just to remind people what's going on there, the tournament, which was supposed to take place this past summer, has been postponed to next summer. It will feature 24 teams. 20 have already qualified via sort of a conventional qualification process in which they divide everybody up into 10 groups and the top two in each group qualified. And then a host of other teams based on their placement in the nation's league, then advance to this qualification playoff to determine the last four participants in the Euros. And so that's what's going on right now. Sort of a couple of big headlines there. Uh, Norway have been eliminated. Erlen Holland and company, they lost to Serbia in extra time, 2-1. Both Serbia goals courtesy of Milinkovic Savic. And that was disappointing to me. I know Norway then turned around a few days later in the Nations League and hammered Romania 4-0 and Holland scored a hat-trick in that game. And so there was a lot of attention on that, his first international hat-trick. But I, I would have, maybe I'm old-fashioned, I, I don't take the Nations League that seriously. I would have loved to have flipped those two Norway results around because I wanted to see Erlen Holland at the Euros. And I'm a little bit concerned that Erlen Holland being from Norway might end up suffering the same fate that we've seen with some great players over the years, whether it's Ryan Giggs or George Best or George Weah, this great player that 
is from a country where he then doesn't get to perform on the biggest international stages. I mean, how much would you love to see an Erlen Haaland playing in Euros and World Cups coming up? And are you concerned that being from Norway, that might not happen? How many, and I don't know this off the top of my head, but how how much has he played for Norway? I mean, I mean, he is he broke on the scene, and this uh, this season and this year that just seems to never end and and overlap with everything. All, all I'm saying is that you know he may be for this next cycle, and we're still, as you mentioned, churning out this last cycle. I mean, it's confusing to me. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I look at this and you explained it pretty well, but it's still confusing to me as to, as to where we are and the overlap that's going on right now. But it's the reality of the, of the situation that's been created. I first became aware of Erlen Holland at the 2019 Under-20 World Cup when he went nuts, including scoring nine goals in one game against Honduras. Uh, and so he major success at youth level for them. And yeah, he's, he's now played a fair amount of time for the senior team. But you're right, it's still early goings in his international career, so I shouldn't uh, cast any judgment. Yeah, I mean, at this point, any tournament that an international tournament, I would want him to be playing. Yeah, absolutely. He's one of the great strikers in the world right now, regardless of his age or his inexperience. Yeah, the other one, I I hate to evoke this conflict in the context of football, but you're going to. uh, Given that I just read a book about the Troubles, uh, the Patrick Radden Keith book, Say Nothing, the prospect of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland possibly facing off in a one-game playoff for a ticket to the Euros was kind of intriguing to me, but it was not to be. Northern Ireland did their part. They defeated Bosnia-Herzegovina on penalties, but the Republic of Ireland fell to Slovakia on penalties. So uh, so the, the four matchups that are left, Alexi, these are all one-off games that are going to take place in November to determine the last four teams at the Euros. It's going to be Hungary, Iceland, and Budapest, Northern Ireland against Slovakia in Belfast. Uh, then it's going to be Serbia, Scotland, and Belgrade, and Georgia against North Macedonia, not to be confused with South Macedonia, uh, in Tbilisi. Uh, so the winners of those games go off to the Euros. Um, so that that was one part of the European story uh, the last few days. And then you also had the Nations League firing up, and you had some pretty big games there. Uh, the, the, the two that really caught my eye, England beat Belgium uh, 2-1 at Wembley. Uh, Mason Mount with the winner, much to Alex Dowd's joy. And then the other one was uh, France and Portugal played to a nil-nil draw at the Stade Saint-Denis. Uh, the Madrid media really hyped this up as Ronaldo versus Mbappe, the last uh, great Madrid star versus the next great Madrid star because they're convinced Kylian Mbappe is going to end up at, at uh, right. Real Madrid, uh, but neither one scored. It was nil-nil. This, uh, uh, you remember how the Nations League works, right? It's the, divided into different tiers, and you have, uh, yep. and then the top tier Ligue, you have four groups, and the winners of each of those groups will then face off in semifinals and final to determine the champion. The other leagues, you're fighting to get promoted or relegated. So, so for example, Norway and Ireland and Holland are in League B. Uh, so if they win their group, they would then get promoted to the top league. But so uh, so to the extent that there's a group of death, it would be this group with you know, France and Croatia, the two finalists from the last World Cup, and Portugal, your reigning European and reigning Nations League winners. And so France and Portugal played in a game that got a lot of attention, and it was uh, nil-nil. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the the England win, and seeing the the way that the English media, which which I love because it's this incredible content generator and and fuel and at times accelerant that you put on uh, whatever fire exists, to see the way that the narrative went from you know what a what a horrible eleven uh, that they're putting out there, and then you're playing against the number one team in the world in Belgium, and then finding a way to win at home, and then. It's 
well, we shouldn't put too much stock in it. Yes, it's okay, and yes, we won and everything, but it's it, it's just amazing how everything everything changes as you, as uh, as even a ninety minutes goes on. So I guess my question to you is, how much stock should we put in it? Because if you watch the game, England was not great, um, and yet they got a great result against a great team and the number one team in the world. And that in and of itself, I think is I think is good. But I do actually kind of agree with they should take it with a grain of salt in that this wasn't the uh, the performance that you point to, the one that you put in a, in a time capsule right there, and very, very easily could have been a bad day for England. Sure, yeah. I think that the picture overall for England is positive. They got to the semifinals of the last World Cup, and as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, there's all this impressive young talent coming up. So the outlook for the next few major tournaments is, is very positive. But yeah, this game in particular, the performance wasn't that impressive, so I wouldn't read that much into it. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's also, it's also interesting, I just want to say that, and this is a good thing, this almost looks, it almost looks like evolution, if you will, that there was a lot of criticism and critique, and not backlash, but certainly criticism, of the style and the way in which they got this, this win. Um, and it was a very ugly, I guess, traditionally you would describe it as ugly. And that the, the English and the England team right now is expecting not just to win, but to win in a certain way and with a collectively accepted um, creativity and flair and color and artistry. I think that's 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 interesting. That's not always been the case when it comes to England. So those expectations, like you mentioned, because of the last World Cup and because of the incredible talent that they, the undeniable talent that they have right now, have raised expectations when they step on the field to the point where you know you're you're assessing them almost like we used to assess uh, assess Spain. Yes, you should win, but how did you win is as important. And let me say this: too, I agree with all that. And then to hop back to Portugal for a second, I, mm-hmm. I think they are absolutely loaded. Uh, this no no against France, notwithstanding, I, I love uh, the talent with Portugal right now. And they won the last Euros. They won the Nations League. I think they're a strong candidate to win this upcoming Euros. And let me tell you something. If come November 2022, Ronaldo is still Ronaldo, I think he's going to have the pieces around him to potentially win a World Cup, which talk about, you know, crowning achievements mm-hmm. in your career. But with the other players that have emerged there and Bernardo Silva and Bruno Fernandes and Joao Felix and Ruben Neves and, and Ruben Diaz at the back and at those fullback positions, Rafael Guerrero and João Cancelo and Ricardo Pereira, it's just talent up and down the lineup. And so I, I think Ronaldo... The supporting cast has caught up to him there, and it, it's a matter of he's going to be, what, 37 years old. But, I mean, if he's still – if anybody can do it, it's him because he's in such incredible shape. If he can still beat Ronaldo, I think look out. All right, so answer me this. Riddle me this here, Mr. Mossy. <laughs> Who has a better chance at winning the next World Cup, Messi or Ronaldo? I would say Ronaldo, which is quite the hot take <gasps> given the pedigree of their respective nations. Now, that that has changed. I mean, look, Portugal's always been a good team, but certainly of late, not of late, well, of, of the last 10 years, and I'm, and look, you're, winning the Euros is, is great, but there has been much more of, um, of, of an agreement out there that Messi has more talent around him than Portugal. But definitely, I, I, and I looked at the Portugal game the other day, and I, there, were, there were times when I was saying, 
you know, this is a this is not a the, the old Portugal where it was just kind of figure it out and there's there's talent, but it's just really not together or it's all about uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. That's that's not the case at all. So I completely agree with you that this is a much improved Portugal team. And can you imagine in the eternal and evergreen debate between Messi and Ronaldo if Ronaldo finds a way to win a World Cup? Oh now, my and, God. and actually, you bringing up Messi is the perfect segue to South American qualifiers, which I want to get to as well, because those... Uh... Then let's go back to Mexico, because they were obviously playing in Europe, but let's go back to the Mexico-Netherlands oh, uh, friendly game that happened, and we'll, kind of, we'll circle back to CONCACAF, because that is, that is important. So, all right, so hit us up with some South, uh, South American qualifying that's going uh, on. They're not messing around. Well, anymore. no, so, so uh, the South American World Cup qualifiers, which I know people love, they started up, and Argentina defeated Ecuador 1-0 at La Bombonera, uh, Messi with the only goal from the penalty spot. And I know we've grown accustomed to empty stadiums, but this was the type of game where people were really bemoaned you know, how great it would have been at a packed Bombonera to have Messi scoring for Argentina in a World Cup qualifier. Uh, the other results, uh, Uruguay beat Chile 2-1, Paraguay and Peru 2-2, Colombia hammered Venezuela 3-0, and then Brazil hammered Bolivia 5-0. Uh, a couple of sort of big picture takes here. Uh, although uh, South American qualifying tends to be very competitive, I think there's some separation here between the top four and everybody else. Uh, I don't see any way around Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and Colombia getting the four automatic spots. I mean, it might not be in that order I just said, but I think those are clearly the, the four. And then you're just wondering who's going to get that fifth to go to a intercontinental playoff, which Peru got it last time. Chile feel like kind of a spent force to me. It feels like they're trying to squeeze every last drop out of a golden generation because they don't have much coming up behind them. Uh, but still, you got to throw them in the mix and Ecuador, Paraguay, maybe. So uh, we'll see. I think that's kind of where we're at generally South America wise. But the, the big talking point, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be like the five millionth person to make this point the last few days, but I think it's a point worth making is that for the first time in his career, it feels like Messi is more comfortable playing for Argentina than Barcelona. Argentina has now become a, a refuge from the uh, dysfunction at Barcelona, which is quite the turning of the tables from the way it's been uh, for for the rest of his career up to this point. But yeah, I think it's true. You know, it's, it's funny. Argentina at the start of the cycle, they couldn't get anybody to manage that team. So they, they gave the job to this Scaloni on an interim basis. He was basically nothing more than their Dave Sarakin, just kind of hold down the fort until we get a real coach. They couldn't find anybody uh, before the Copa America. So they said, okay, you can manage that tournament as well. And something happened there where the players really liked him and Messi really took to him and Messi assumed a real leadership position there. And it was decided like, no, let's keep this guy in charge. So they gave him the job permanently. And there's all of a sudden a really harmonious feel about Argentina under Scaloni. And you juxtapose that with what's going on at Barcelona. So it's kind of interesting how the tables have turned for Messi here in terms of the whole club versus country dynamic. Do you think it's it's more based on the the lack of confusion uh, that we often used to associate with the, with the Argentine Federation? Uh, because in the past, it was, you know, when, when Messi stepped on that plane to go play with Argentina, he was actually taking a step down in terms of the quality and talent surrounding him. Uh, and you know, look, Barcelona certainly has gone through a, a transition here and is going through something right now, but there's still plenty of talent that he's surrounded. Has that also flipped in that, do you think when he goes to Argentina now, he's surrounded by more talent than when he's playing at Barcelona? Um, no, I wouldn't go that far. I, I think Argentina okay. are still in kind of a, a process of transition themselves. And I don't, I don't see overwhelming talent there either, but I, I don't know, maybe the expectations are, are different with Argentina. That's having like a less high profile coach and 
and the fact that they were perceived at the start of the cycle to be kind of in the wilderness. And so anything positive that happens there, you know, it's seen through a different light. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, th- I think it, it probably has more to do with what's going on at Barcelona than <laughs> what's going on with Argentina. But nevertheless, like there was this overriding sense the last few days that Messi was probably welcomed getting away from Barcelona and going to play for Argentina, which is, which is kind of pretty big contrast from the way it's been in the past. Wow. Wow. All right. Uh, anything else down there? You want to uh, head up to CONCACAF uh, here? Yeah, yeah. No, we, we can go to Mexico. Okay. So, I mean, the, the, the big the big news uh, from a CONCACAF perspective, especially in a, in a break where the United States is not playing, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second, is that Mexico went over to uh, Europe uh, during this break and uh, not only played well, but ended up beating the Netherlands. Um, the Netherlands, certainly a team that is stocked and has been and a perennial type of uh, favorite when it comes to the game. Uh, and they beat them in, uh, in, uh, in Holland. So huge, huge feather in the cap for uh, Tata Martino and El Tri right now, which we know are major competitors. And that the U.S. wasn't playing only made it stand out that much uh, more. Uh, in watching the game, uh, Tecatito was really, really good. In general, I think Mexico certainly held their own, and it was certainly a deserved type of performance. And on the other side, when it comes to Frank de Boer uh, right now, uh, not not winning either of the games and not scoring uh, with the amount of talent that the Dutch have is is inexcusable right now. And I don't think he's going anywhere, but it certainly is not off to a great start when it comes to the De Boer era for uh, the Netherlands. Yeah, this was a uh, battle of former Atlanta United coaches with Tata Martino and yeah. <laughs> Frank De Boer and the other. And, and, and Frank De Boer doesn't need to worry because if he gets fired from this job, he'll get hired by Real Madrid. Or I mean, I've, I've never seen a guy <laughs> who's able to fall up uh, more than he does. I mean, this we can spend a second on that before we transition to Mexico. Uh, listen, I know he was a legendary player there and a successful coach with uh, Ajax. So in, in the Netherlands, the, the opinion of him, I'm, I'm sure, is still overall positive. But, I mean, have they not paid attention to the last five years or so? That You know, they got hit with a curveball there and Ronald Koeman leaving to take over Barcelona. But, boy, they couldn't do better than Frank De Boer. That, that was a pretty inexplicable hire, in my opinion. Uh, and well, that that might so they've had they had some momentum here the last couple of years after failing to qualify for the last World Cup they've played pretty well in this cycle and I don't know bringing in Frank De Boer could be to me could undermine all of that. Well, we're, we're going to talk more about the <laughs> the art and the skill uh, and the formula that either does or doesn't exist when it comes to hiring coaches in a little a little later in the uh, uh, in the pod. So congratulations to uh, to Mexico. That uh, you know even though there are major rivals, that's a that's a good result. And it's not just good for Mexico; it's also good for Concacaf. Well, we talked about this. There's so much excitement right now surrounding the U.S. and having all these young players at these big European clubs. And there's very much this notion now that the U.S. has a brighter future than Mexico based on that. Mm-hmm. And there's been some hand-wringing in Mexico about it. But in the meantime, Mexico go out and, and have this result. And do and you think they're sort of motivated by all that talk? And there's a sense of, wait a minute, but the U.S. hasn't proven anything on the field. And, and we're, we, we've kind of actually have some results here to back up the fact that we're the kings of CONCACAF right now. And so I, I mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again. I think the Mexico-U.S. rivalry is at a fascinating point right now. I'm looking forward to the next time they play. Uh, given you know all these sort of storylines swirling, it will, and I, I think I mentioned this on a previous pod. The other storyline that will be swirling is how much, or in the U.S.'s case, how little impact 
MLS is going to have because we talk about all these players playing over in Europe and, you know, we saw Pizzato uh, with, uh, with El Tree uh, and Polito and, you know, these types of players. And th- the potential is there for Mexico to have a impact and maybe even a greater impact from its MLS players on the national team uh, than the United States. Uh, we don't know. Still a long way to go. And part of the reason why we don't know, uh, to move it on to, to this conversation, is that the U.S. is not playing um, in, this, in this break. It sucks. Uh, anyway, anyway, you slice it. But I, I, I recognize and I can respect and it's, it's, uh, it's understandable given the challenges that we have um, and the challenges when it comes to travel. So initially, the United States Soccer Federation had targeted a domestic camp for October and then a European camp for November. And, you know, wh- whoever could and obviously the players that Greg Berhalter wanted, but more importantly, if they could travel, uh, without too much of a mess, it, it would happen. We all know that you know the, the restrictions and the different restrictions and all of the challenges uh, out there when, uh, when it comes to it. But this is yet another opportunity that is lost for Greg Berhalter to have that team that we keep uh, talking about, or part of that team. It's, almost, it's next to impossible to get everybody that you want at the same time, especially given the current circumstances, but you do the best, uh, uh, you, you do the best that, you, that you can. But for those of us that want to see and get some of these players on the field, like like a Gio Reyna or something like that, this this is uh, this is a hard one to swallow that the U.S. isn't uh, isn't playing right now. Don't know what's going to happen as we get further on down the line. What happens uh, in November? I would think that it's just as frustrating for Greg Berhalter and company over there to not be able to get on the field and, and actually put some of these things uh, these things in place. But I don't know when that is. Uh, I don't know when that is going to change, which brings me to, you know, I guess uh, my final thing when we're talking about all of these international games, uh, and that is this. Um, You mentioned, Mossy, that uh, the uh, European championships uh, were supposed to happen this year, and obviously they were delayed and, 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 and pushed back. When I look at the world right now, and as it relates to the game of soccer, uh, and in particular international soccer, I look at the, the, the coming and the looming World Cup in 2022, the Men's World Cup in 2022 that we all know is happening um, in, uh, in Qatar and is happening in a unique way, in a special way, in a first ever way, happening in November slash December. And I see all of these games and I see this log jam of competition that is happening and that is going to happen over the next two years. And once again, it's just... This is best laid plans, and on paper it's going to happen, but we don't know what 2021 is going to bring. Hopefully better things in 2020, but we don't know. I start to think about the 22 World Cup in Qatar, and I start to think, at what point do we say, you know what, this is unprecedented times, and we are trying to fit so many things into a short period of time, and into a time that we don't even know is going to be able to facilitate those things. At what point do we consider saying, let's have the World Cup in 2023 as opposed to 2022? Let's move it. Let's shift it a year in the same way that we have done with the Olympics, in the same way that we have done with the European Championship. Uh, I think that there has to come a point where we actually look at that to alleviate some of this pressure. Is it ideal? Is it perfect? No. But none of this stuff ever was going to be. And uh, you know, an unprecedented type of moment requires some unique and different type of thinking. 
and doing things that in normal times we would not even dream of doing. Well, these aren't normal times. And I do think that some consideration and a potential move of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, delaying it for a year and happening in 2023, could alleviate some of those problems. Now, will it create other problems? Probably. <laughs> you know, that you can't, you know, there is, for every action, there is a reaction. But um, I'd be interested to hear what people thought about that, if that would be something that people would support. Um, obviously, the general public, uh, we don't have a whole lot of control or power when it comes to that. But I'd be wondering if people behind the scenes were possibly contemplating doing something like that, and if that could not solve every problem, but like I said, help alleviate some of the congestion that inevitably is going to come and some of the problems that, are, that maybe are going to arise. And the other problems that it creates, we can deal with. I mean, look, we're kicking everything down the road anything, uh, anyway when it comes to uh, 2020 and, uh, and beyond. I don't see why the World Cup in 2022 uh, can't be the same thing. Uh, any, any, any thoughts on that before we move on, Mossy? No, yeah. I mean, listen, we talk about all these international games going on. The issue that was overhanging all this was, do we need international football right now? There was a real feeling in a lot of quarters that with all the risks in, involved in players traveling around and all the logistical nightmares of them having to quarantine when they get back to certain countries, that maybe international football was something that we could do without right now. But the other argument was if we're going to sort of maintain this schedule that we've laid out for the next couple of years, we kind of need to get going again. So, which speaks to your point, you know, if we kicked the World Cup down the road, maybe that would have alleviated some of this pressure to, to start international football up again. But uh, it is what it is. Well, to, to, to answer the question before we go, then, do, do we need it? I don't think we I don't think we need it. This like this weekend watching the games, I'll watch soccer because I like to watch soccer, but I wasn't jacked up about the fact that I could, you know, watch the Netherlands or watch or, or, or Portugal in the international setting. And I'll tell you what, the the lack of fans in a strange way it exasperated the situation. Like it, and and that shouldn't happen if I think about it because, you know, the tribalism of 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 clubs and the the um you know, the experiences and the surroundings that we associate with clubs somehow um, take on added meaning. And yet when it comes to the international game, certain there's some wonderful, you, men, you mentioned, you know, Argentina, different places where there's a celebration. But I, I don't know, maybe the, the pride that one feels of stepping on the field at, or watching your team step on the field and represent your country because you're not in that stadium, you don't have those, you know, that, that experience. I just... It, it did nothing for me. It was just guys running around in shirts. It wasn't players representing countries anymore. I don't know. I don't know if you had the same experience, but, you know, I don't know when that's going to change either. So, all right, Mossy, anything else? That's it. All right, we're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, uh, we'll be talking uh, Major League Soccer, all sorts of stuff happening on and off the field when it comes to Major League Soccer. So don't go anyway. We'll take a little short break here and come right back with that. All right, moving on. All right, we're back, uh, and we're going to uh, dive into our MLS roundup. All sorts of stuff happening. MLS, uh, you know, we were talking in the previous segment about the international break and everything that's going on. As we know, uh, MLS just drives headfirst right on through the international breaks and continues to play. There is a, a business reality and certainly a business consideration that has been in place for a number of years. There's only so many dates, and, and certainly in a, in a year like 2020 when even fewer dates have been available um, from, from a pure business and financial perspective. 
teams can ill afford to uh, take those take those times off. And they don't, which means that you're getting a lot of teams that are uh, missing and even teams that are stripped bare when it comes to the quality and talent that you have. So a lot of inexperienced players, um, a lot of younger players playing, and teams looking very, very different than they would in normal circumstances. Players are off with their international teams, and they will be subjected to whatever uh, restrictions that the leagues and the local uh, states and areas have when they come back. And so not only are they missing games that they're just away from, but when it comes to quarantine, when they return to the country, uh, they're going to have to miss uh, additional games. So not ideal from a talent perspective, but also, I would never want to stand in the way of a player representing their country. And so it, it comes with the territory, as does playing through these international uh, international breaks, which meant that we had uh, plenty of action. But, you know, the big story for me was the, the Ben Olsen situation. Ben Olsen, uh, for those that don't know, a D.C. United legend when it came to uh, being a player, uh, part of uh, that organization, I think he came a couple years into the organization, and he's been a part ever since. There was a, there was a stat out there, and I apologize uh, if I'm not uh, for not citing who who put this out, but um, and it might have just been MLS that Ben Olson was involved either on the field as a player or off the field as a coach for DC United in 70 plus percent of the games that they have played in their entire history, which is amazing. That in and of itself shows you that he is DC United. He was fired, and he was fired after 10 years at the helm. And it's, it's not been a raring and roaring type of success when it comes to Ben Olsen. As a matter of fact, uh, when you look at Ben Olsen's 10 years, there are points that had anybody been in that position of head coach um, that didn't have the name of Ben Olsen, they would have been gone a long, long time ago. Never has a coach been given such benefit of the doubt and such a long leash. Uh, all of that is to say is, is that, you know, Ben Olsen uh, was a rarity and something that doesn't exist. The next uh, coach right now that you would look to right now would be a Peter Vermes. But even in the modern game right now, it just doesn't happen that, that coaches stay for very long. And... There's good and bad when it comes to something like that. You know, when I when I look at Ben Olsen, um, he took over with, what, four or five months of assistant coach experience. He had no resume. He had no background. And in a day and age where we talk so much about privilege and opportunity or inequity or, or inequality, uh, ben Olsen had no business being named the head coach of uh, DC United from a pure CV and resume type of, uh, of, of standpoint. There are men and women and lots and lots of them that had so much more experience. Ben Olsen was not the best person for the job at the time. Uh, but he was there. As I said, he was a club legend. And good for Ben Olsen, all right, for making the best of that opportunity. And we talk about timing, and we talk about circumstances, and we talk about connections, and we talk about using what is at your disposal to be successful. And that's what he did. And how he got there, to be quite honest, to him is irrelevant. That he got there and he was able to stay there for 10 years 
is pretty incredible. But now the question is, where does DC United go from here? And there will be plenty of people that come for the job, plenty with incredible uh, backgrounds and resumes, because it is a valuable job. But it is also a team that is not one of the elites right now. And by all accounts, is not going to change that anytime soon. So you're going to be able to only have so much to work with. Uh, I saw our good friend over uh, in D.C., Stephen Goff, uh, wrote an article today uh, about Jill Ellis, the uh, now former uh, coach for the U.S. Women's National Team, two-time winning World Cup coach right now, as a potential candidate for that. I think that D.C. United, like any team that's looking at a coach like Jill Ellis or, or a Pep Guardiola or a Zinedine Zidane, who's whose reputation and credibility is based almost entirely on having the best teams and the best players, DC United is going to have to look at someone like Jill Ellis, if, they, if, if that's part of the, uh, uh, the pool of uh, candidates, and say, well, is Jill Ellis a great coach or is Jill Ellis a great coach because she has been, she's had the best players and the best teams going forward? I just think it's a, an amazing moment right now for DC United. And I think this next hire will be incredibly important to kind of show where they want to go. And the Ben Olsen type of scenario, I think it's, it's done. I don't think that that happens anymore in, in, uh, in the sport. Um, and I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but it's just it's, it's, it's archaic at this point right now. So we'll see uh, who ends up uh, getting hired there. And as I said before, there were plenty of times along the way. And Ben Olsen will be the first person to tell you that there were times where any other person would have gotten fired. Uh, and he found a way to dig himself out of problems. He found a way when things looked really, really bad to turn the ship around um, and find a way to change the, uh, the thinking when it came to if they were going to make a, uh, a change or not. Uh, they continue to be... A, a mediocre to bad team in Major League Soccer right now. And I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. To be fair, there are plenty of uh, injuries when it comes to D.C. United this year. Um, but everybody has injuries and everybody has things that they can complain uh, complain about. Mossy, anything on, on Ben Olsen before we, we dive into some other yeah, stuff? Yeah, Brian Strauss wrote a really good column about this. And he, he sort of took DC United to task for not uh, celebrating their history more. And Bruce Arena has said mm -hmm. the same thing. Bruce Arena said, you know, when you walk into Audi Field, you ought to be seeing uh, Marco Echeverri and Jaime Moreno's jerseys and, and all sorts of banners uh, hung up to commemorate all their success. Uh, and instead, they've kind of turned their back on their past. And the point that Brian Strauss made was that uh, ben Olsen was sort of the last link to that, the last remnant of the glory days of this franchise. And now that he's gone, DC United truly are in danger of becoming just another uh, MLS franchise that sort of gets lost in the pile with everybody else. And you having, you know, played in those initial years of the league, I mean, you know what DC United once upon a time represented in MLS. Mm, yeah. And is it kind of sad to see that we're sitting here now and DC United don't really mean much of anything anymore? There's a whole generation of younger MLS fans who probably view DC United as just kind of a throwaway franchise that's not really that significant. Yeah, I mean... I, I guess, but I mean, if if you are of the opinion that we live in a world where uh, there is all of this advantage, uh, and as I said, inequity and, and privilege out there, wouldn't this be a moment of, not that you celebrate somebody losing their job, but 
isn't Ben Olsen the epitome of all of that? I, and, and look, I know his his background as a player has value, but you know, here's here's a guy that for ten years was given a choice job in Major League Soccer, and think of all the men and women that were denied the opportunity to do that with so much more experience, with so much more of a pedigree. I, I don't, and, and yes, I understand. Now, I understand it and I can celebrate him because I recognize that life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair. And we all use different things to, uh, to our advantage. And as I said, Ben Olsen being at the right place at the right time and being Ben Olsen, he used that to his advantage. And I don't begrudge him that. And to your, to your point about Brian Strauss's article, you know, yes, I want connections to the past. Yes, we are at a point 25 years to, in, in MLS where there is tradition um, and there is history that should be celebrated and should be curated. And there is, um, there is that type of tradition and history that exists in individuals and things. And if you ignore it or... If you or if you think that it's not important, I think you're you're selling yourself short, and you're 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 missing out on something that, if you do harness it, can be valuable. So I I, I understand I understand what he's saying, but you know maybe it's maybe it's just the age that we live in and the time that we live in that I'm thinking of of all of these all of these different things, and I think about you know as I said I think about opportunity, and you know. I, you know, I, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Jesse Marsh later on in the show and the opportunities and the different advantages that we have as human beings. And some have more and some have less. And the, you know, the desire um, and, you know, the honorable type of desire to try to make things equal to the extent that we can and whether that's even possible uh, going forward. So anyway, that's. You know, that's the way that, I've, that, that I'm thinking about this D.C. United thing right now. As I said, I will be interested, you know, unlike the Red Bulls, uh, which named a new coach, where there is an identity and there's that family right now. D.C. United's not like that. And so it will be kind of open up to a whole lot more when it comes to the list of, player, uh, of coaches that they were, that I think that they are going to uh, consider. But now, you know, we... We follow it much more closely as to how teams are going about picking their coaches and are they doing it correctly and what were the criteria and who was on the list and who wasn't on the list and why weren't these people involved and why were these people involved. And I'm not saying that's a, a bad or, or a good thing, but there's a whole lot more scrutiny on how people are going about their job. And ultimately, whoever it is, whether it's Jill Ellis or anybody else, you got to win. And you have to do better. And you're going to have to do it better with a team that at least the way that they've acted uh, over the last 10 years is not one that is going to compete with the elites of Major League Soccer. Um, notwithstanding signing Wayne Rooney and something like that, but they are not on the level of spending as other teams. So I don't know if that's going to, uh, going to change uh, going, uh, going forward. All right, Mossy, uh, what else... Uh, stood out to you when it comes to MLS. Seattle keeps, uh, well, doesn't keep chugging along. They, uh, they come into uh, Los Angeles last night. And, you know, th this is such a strange league. 
Such a strange league. I, I, I say all the time, if I ever find the man or woman that can consistently and correctly predict Major League Soccer, just in normal times, let alone in 2020, uh, in 2020 uh, you know, I will, I will social distance, but I will uh, let them know uh, how in awe I am of them because it's such a difficult league to predict. Seattle cruising along. They come down to play LAFC. LA decimated by injuries, making two substitutes in the first 15 minutes. They, they, you know, they have players gone on international duty. Obviously, the MVP of the league in Carlos Vela. Who knows when he's ever going to uh, start playing soccer again. Uh, and they go and they beat Seattle. And it's such an MLS type of, uh, type of result. Now, Seattle's a very, very good team, and they will continue to be a good team. And I know they didn't have Ru- Rui Diaz, but still, it's just so difficult to predict <laughs> this, uh, this league right now. The New England Revolution go into NYCFC, and Bruce Serena fields a team that is, I think, 10 of the 11 players are players who went the college path, which we know is the, uh, the path of, uh, to doom. <laughs> and yet they go into New York and uh, at Yankee Stadium and beat NYCFC. There's just there's so much craziness going on. You got Inter Miami that are, that are finally winning and Iguain. Well, not the Iguain brothers because Federico is now down. Uh, been traded down to uh, to Miami right now. That will be interesting to see how that all plays out. Two two very very good players and certainly one of them. Uh, with uh, much more experience than the other when it comes to MLS. Although, Gonzalo Higuain's free kick was uh, something to behold, as was Nicolas Lodero's free kick uh, last night. So some wonderful goals and some head-scratching type of uh, results. But has Miami turned the corner, you think, Mossy? Well, you know, they've won two in a row. uh, But Alex Dowd let us know uh, when we started taping this podcast that in his view, a winning streak begins at three. You have to win three mm, okay. straight for it to be considered a winning streak. And Alex Dowd, he, he has a staunch rule about that. I mean, he said he, he will not budge on that. So in his view, Inter-Miami still are not in the midst of a winning streak. They, they've merely won two games in a row. But yeah, the LAFC result really got my attention. You know, we, we, usually with LAFC, it's about playing beautiful soccer. Mm-hmm. But in this case, given the circumstances that you mentioned, they really had to grind it out and they did. So give them credit for that. And then... Uh, you know, the two other teams that I think we need to highlight are Portland and Toronto. Uh, Portland hammered San Jose 3-0. They've won five straight. They're now level on points with Seattle atop the Western Conference. They had a dip right after the MLS's back tournament, and also they suffered the loss of Sebastian Blanco and, and took a minute yep. to kind of adjust to playing without him, but they seem to have gotten their mojo back again. There's a guy, Mike Boom, who's tweeted us a couple of times in the last few days asking us if uh, Portland are legitimate title contenders, and neither you or I ever get back to him, but I'll say it here in the pod. Hopefully he's listening. Absolutely, I think Portland are legitimate MLS Cup uh, contenders. And then over in the East, Toronto, which uh, continues to roll. They beat Cincinnati 1-0. They've won five straight. They've now moved into first place, leapfrogging Columbus. Um, and and Alejandro Pozuelo has emerged as something of an MVP favorite here. Uh, I, I don't know if you agree with that, but that, that I've, I've seen that a lot uh, in different places. So, so yeah, I think, you know, Portland and Toronto really impressing me. And, and yeah, I don't read that much into Seattle's defeat. I would still obviously put them up there too. So they're, if you're looking for two or three teams here that are kind of standing out ahead of the pack right now, I'd, I'd say it's Seattle and Portland in the West and Toronto in the East. And, you know, then you got Columbus and, and Philadelphia, you know, just, just there. Uh, and certainly their fans would tell you that they should be more than just uh, just there. To, you know, we started off the pod today talking about 
the the Lakers winning the the NBA championship. How much of it? Because we talked a lot about this this year about how much is going to have an asterisk. How much is it going to be? diluted by the fact that it happened in this year. And we still don't know what the playoff situation is going to look like when it comes to Major League Soccer, even if there might be bubbles or multiple bubbles or how it's all going to uh, how it's going to play out. But at some point, we are going to crown a winner of Major League Soccer when it comes to MLS Cup for 2020. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how how much credit and credence we should give to a team that, that that does that. I haven't read a whole lot about the basketball, but are people saying that that this is, yes, it's a championship, but it's done in such surreal and, and different circumstances that it doesn't have the weight and the validity that regular championships have? No, I haven't seen any of that. I, I think there's okay. just in the sports world, there's sort of a general feeling of no this counts let's let's treat this like normal in fact i've, I've heard some people argue that it, it almost counts even more because uh, mm-hmm. in the case of basketball you're in this bubble so it's neutral games and no fans so you are removing all the different variables and just making about about who the better teams are so it's almost more legitimate than in, in, in under normal times so yeah no i think whoever wins mls cup this will will count just like any other year, and I think I don't think there'll be any real asterisks. But next, I could be wrong about that, but that's just my sense. No, I I, I agree with you, and I think that I, I've I've gone back and forth with it. Um, and as I said, I think last week I've also gone back and forth of how fair I'm being by judging in these crazy times. Um, but 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 to your point, I think that there will be uh, there will be credit and rightfully given to the winners for a number of reasons, not the least of which is their ability to adjust and adapt to the craziness on and off the field. And maybe even more so, you mentioned Toronto. You know, Toronto is a team, uh, obviously, that has had additional challenges of not being able to play at home and having to move over to uh, the United States and play their home games in the United States. And if Greg Vanning and company are able to adjust and adapt to even even more types of uh, challenges out there. They deserve even more credit. And I think that's where I where I come come down. I've all, I've I've said all year that no matter what, 2020 is going to have an asterisk. But and and you know that'll that'll make it different and unique. But I do think that there will be an appreciation and a respect and a value put on the players, the coaches, the teams that are able to function and find a way to be great, whatever that means, in, in, in 2020. And I think, that's, I think that's the right thing to do. And we're not, look, we're not living their lives, so I, I can't claim to understand what they are going through. But I do know that they need to be able to adjust. And some people have done it better than others. And there should be a credit given and, like I said, a value assigned to teams and to players and to coaches that are able to make those adjustments uh, in this unprecedented type of uh, uh, type of time. Um, speaking of uh, uh, playoffs, you know we don't know how this is going to shake out. There are a lot of teams that make the playoff this uh, this year, uh, even more so than in the than in the past. And, and then we're going to kind of start a whole new tournament as we as we do when it comes uh, when it comes to playoffs and. And as I also said, we don't know what it's ultimately going uh, going to look like and how it's going to be structured. We do know that from a Fox perspective, 
whatever ends up being, we will be broadcasting it. We will be there for, uh, for MLS Cup. We have the uh, honor and the privilege of uh, televising MLS Cup this year. We obviously don't know where it's going to be, and we don't know in what form it is going to take. That's uh, TBD as we go forward. Anything else MLS, Mossy? That's it. All right, we're going to take another break here, and we come back. Oh, yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi, using that hashtag Ask Alexi and uh, sending us your comments, questions, and concerns. So don't go anywhere. Moving on. Okay, we're back, and it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy, but you send us uh, some questions, comments, and concerns out there on the old uh, social media platforms, your Twitters and your Facebooks and your Instagrams, and we pick a few each week, as we did this week. And uh, what do the people want to know this week, Mossy? Uh, first up, this is a guy who tweets at us a lot. He must be a big, big fan of this pod. At Young who Marvin G. Uh, young Marvin G wants to know, what's going on with Project Big Future in England? Oh, my goodness. All right. So where do I start? All right. So <laughs> are you leaning back and letting me do this? I can do it. All right. You're going you're gonna to have to help me, uh, uh, Mossy. Uh, your, your savantness, if that's even a word, is going to have to help me. All right. So the Project Big Future is something that emerged uh, over the last week, and it was not intended to be public. However, anything that happens in England, given the press, uh, it, it, it inevitably was going to leak out. And it did. And it is, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, it is a, obviously a project inherent in the name, where the teams in England, we all know about the dominance and the, uh, you know, the incredible popularity of the EPL. For those that don't know, uh, you have the EPL, and then you have uh, the EFL, the English Football League, which includes the championship and League One and League Two. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that right now, uh, even with all the success of English football over the years, everybody is struggling. Now, struggling is relative to different people. Uh, right now, when it comes to the EFL, uh, they are struggling through these times when it comes to finances uh, and the business and the realities and the challenges uh, that come from going through a 2020, the likes uh, a year, the likes of which nobody has uh, ever seen. And they are losing money uh, and they need money. What this is, uh, Project Big Picture, is uh, right now, uh, correct, it's uh, Manchester United and who is the other one? Uh, Liverpool. Liverpool. So obviously two very, very big teams, super clubs, got together. Some would say colluded, but they got together and just, they discussed the potential and the possibility of making some major changes. Now, we've talked about this before when it comes to the Super League or getting rid of relegation or you know thing, things like that and having the haves uh, versus the have-nots and having the haves uh, who want to control things and mitigate risk and make more money do, uh, do some things to have that happen. Uh, a couple of things that the project big picture would, hap would, would have if it was ever implemented. And this is a long way from ever being implemented. As I mentioned, the EFL is in dire need of a bailout. So first and foremost, 250 million pounds would be given to the EFL uh, that would help them uh, with the challenges that they are going through right now. And it amounts to a, a bailout. The other thing that would happen is 25% of the EPL money, and that's a good chunk. EPL makes a tremendous amount of money. And part of the problem is the EPL is such a juggernaut and so powerful 
and it's not necessarily spreading the wealth. Well, 25% of the EPL money would go to the EFL, and that's more money, obviously, to help lower leagues. But in return, some things would happen, including the end of parachute payments, things like no league cup, things like only 18 teams ultimately in the EPL, uh, which limits it. Also, nine of the most long-serving Premier, Premier League teams would be able to veto things. Uh, have I missed anything there when it comes to what's going on? There's also more money that would go to them. All of this is to say is that a lot of people are looking at this as a backdoor, uh, an underhanded type of deal that most of the Premier League, uh, and certainly those outside of the big teams, were not even necessarily aware of, and that would create a situation um, that changes fundamentally the way that the leagues work. I think everybody's in agreement that finding ways to sustain and save soccer at all levels is is beneficial. They want to do it. I guess it's just how they go about do it and what are the concessions that those big super clubs get in return that could fundamentally change the way that we look at uh, the EPL. I know that's confusing, but Mossy, what have I missed in terms of explaining it? No, I think you hit all the broad strokes correctly. I mean, it's just, it's this has been very unpopular in the English media and it's being portrayed as uh, these big Premier League clubs essentially trying to buy more power. You know, you, you talk about the 250 billion pound, uh, two, I'm sorry, 250 million pound payment to the lower leagues and also uh, 25% of the television revenue. If the story ended there, it would just be a story of generosity and selflessness yep. and sort of seeing the bigger picture and that these le lower leagues need help. But there are strings attached, as you mentioned, and everything, it, all the strings attached are uh, by, by reducing it to 18 teams, it would mean that only two teams would be automatically relegated each season. Uh, the third to bottom would then play in a playoff like they do in Germany against uh, some championship team. Uh, by eliminating the League Cup, it's all about condensing the schedule to give more room for these big clubs to play in lucrative preseason friendlies. They also uh, want... Um, they, some of the rest, uh, restrictions on on big teams loaning players to uh, lower division clubs to be lifted, so uh, big clubs will be able to stash more of their players in the lower divisions. Um, uh, and and yeah, you mentioned that, that they want this sort of special status. It, it would right now it would be the big six, and then Everton, uh, West Ham, and Southampton that would qualify for that sort of special status where they get sort of a disproportionate amount of power uh, when it comes to voting on future. Uh, television and, and sponsorship deals and also different rules, presumably VAR and anything sort of relating to the Premier League, the, those clubs want to have more power in terms of shaping the way the Premier League uh, moves forward. And so, yeah, it's, it's being portrayed in the English media. And it's funny because Liverpool and Manchester United are seen as the ringleaders here. And although there are plenty of English executives at both those clubs that are in favor of all this, uh, all the newspaper stories keep mentioning John Henry and Joel Glazer yeah. because they want to portray this as sort of this, these Americans coming in who have no respect for English tradition and it's just a, a, a shameless power grab. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of where we're at with this. It's been met with the uh, universal derision and, and this is just being portrayed as, you know, you're, 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 you're offering up all this money to lower divisions and pretending to be magnanimous about it, but there's all these, these strings attached that would ultimately increase your power and make the English football pyramid even more uh, top-heavy than it already is. So blame America. Um, <laughs> I can't help but think about, uh, you know, in, in times of strife, um, you know, we, we've seen in times of war, for example, war profiteering and, 
you know, and look, I'm not saying that that's where we are right now, but there is an element of business that looks at moments of distress. And as I said, moments of strife as moments of opportunity. And without a doubt, because uh, the, uh, the org- when this became public, uh, those involved, whether, uh, whether it was uh, Liverpool or Manchester United or anybody that had knowledge of this, they made a point of saying that this was being discussed and contemplated well before uh, COVID and well before the pandemic. But, but now the reality is in this year where there are so many challenges and financial problems uh, going on, this has accelerated the potential of something like this happening. And, and, and to your point, Mossy, I think that there are those, uh, and, and once again, there's a separation between the haves and the have-nots. The haves recognize an opportunity to amass more power um, as I said, to mitigate some some risk and to do it at a time when people are desperate. Now, there are those that will look at that as, you know, a, a, a horrible uh, preying upon vulnerable people at the worst possible time. And there are others that will look at it simply as, you know, this is business. And if uh, the finances are such that, uh, you know, the, the EFL needs money in order to survive, they're going to have to get it somewhere. Well, they will get it for us. And if they got it from a bank, there would still be strings attached. There always are when you uh, give, people, uh, uh, give people money. And it's, it's the price to pay in order to, uh, in order to survive. I, I don't think that this necessarily continues on. Um, and I'm sure that there were some interesting conversations, <laughs> private conversations about how this ultimately became uh, public and if that is a, if that is a good, thing, uh, good thing or not. But to your question, that's what's going on right now. Nothing has been decided. I don't think anything will be decided anytime soon. But this also should come as absolutely no surprise. And it has nothing to do with American influence. All right. Americans aren't taking over English football, doing anything that hasn't been done in business and hasn't been done for many, many years and maybe even better in business when it comes uh, to the English. And maybe they'll be able to hide behind the American part of it. But don't think for a second, like you said, that there aren't plenty of people out there that would love for these things to come true because it would put them in a better position to maximize these incredible brands that they have, uh, to make more money, to be more efficient in the way that they use that brand uh, to make money, and to afford themselves protections that maybe in the past they haven't been able to get. And this moment in time maybe is that moment when they see an opportunity and they see a bargain. And like I said, I don't think that this is necessarily going to come to anything, but if there was ever a time where people are going to feel jammed on the other side and where people are going to feel, hey, this is the moment to act, that's probably why this has come to the forefront specifically at this time. And interesting that this comes on the heels of uh, Manchester City executive Ferran Soriano uh, rocking the boat too by suggesting that um, the reserve sides of Premier League clubs should compete in the lower divisions the way they do Mm -hmm. in Spain. Uh, He feels like uh, the young players at these uh, bigger clubs, that would be better for their development to actually play in, in instead of playing in a reserve league, to play in actual the championship and the and league, league one and, and sort of these lower divisions where it's more competitive matches. And that's been criticized because that's making a mockery of these lower divisions. And so between this notion of having the Premier League clubs field reserve sides in the lower divisions and also perhaps 
reducing the Premier League to 18 teams and, and reducing the number of teams that get automatically relegated. You know, while in this country, there's all this hand-wringing over the need for promotion relegation. In England, there's this concern that the whole concept of promotion relegation is, is getting diluted and that the bigger clubs want to sort of, this is a slippery slope toward doing away with it altogether. And so uh, it's, it's kind of interesting how this whole thing is, is playing out, both sides Can't of the Can't we just get somebody, no, let's just get an American, just to, just to say it. I mean, somebody say it, right? Let's get rid of relegation, <laughs> right? Is that... <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, and yet it should come as no surprise. And again, uh, and all I said, yeah. I mentioned, you know, reducing it to 18 teams, having Premier League clubs feel reserve sides. And as I mentioned, Premier League clubs being able to stash more of their players on loan at these other lower division sides. So it's it's all sort of, you know, building towards just, just Premier League clubs essentially using these lower divisions for their purposes and what suits them. And so, yeah, I mean, this has the the purest in England in an uproar for sure. All right. Well, we took a long time with that one. So let's uh, let's blaze through the next couple of them here. Uh, what's the next question? At Camden131, what do you think of Tottenham's window? If I think if we're grading winners and losers over the window, that Tottenham would have to be up there at the top, I, w- I would think. And as we said last week, you know, they still have bullets in the belt uh, in the form of Bale. I, I saw him training uh, actually this morning and banging in goals. So, you know... Jose Mourinho must be just walking into training every day with a pep in his step, uh, if you will, right now. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Who, who, who else should you put on that echelon uh, up, up there on top? Anybody it's funny. Else? Alex Dowd cannot let go of transfer talk. He loves it. We, we've talked so much about the transfer market the last uh, uh, two weeks, but he still felt like there was some, you know, cleaning up to be done here as far as the, the, the you know, I guess because we didn't explicitly he just wants us to talk about Chelsea and losers. Or... But no, I mean, listen, uh, just on Tottenham quickly, I, I, I went on a whole spiel about them last week. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing turn of events here. A window that for a long time seemed like it was going to be pretty quiet. They made three small moves. They got Joe Hart, Matt Doherty, and Pierre Hoiberg, and it looked like that might be it. And then they sort of came to life here at the end and getting Sergio Reguillon, Gareth Bale, and then this Carlos Vinicius on loan from Benfica, all good moves, you know, who, which, so now, I mean, Mourinho now has a lot of guys. He has a real good squad there. Obviously, there's a sort of a hit or miss component to bail, but if that ever hits, I mean, Tottenham could be in some real business here. They held on to Dele Ali, which I think was a smart move as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Tottenham definitely one of the winners, and Mourinho has a really good squad at his disposal. Uh, a couple of lingering things that I, I didn't mention last week. Amidst all the doom and gloom at Manchester United over their transfer window, uh, this Uruguayan teenager they signed, Facundo Pelistri from Peñarol, is very, very good. Now, he's only 18, so I don't know if he's going to be able to help Sochar, but if he's a guy that if in two or three years from now he blossoms into a top player, we might look back at this window a little bit differently and say, oh, that's the window they got him, so maybe it wasn't so bad. So he's a very talented player who looked like he was on his way to Lyon, and then Manchester United sort of hijacked that deal. So that's actually a pretty good one that – uh, they deserve credit for. And actually, Tim Vickery has written about this guy a lot because he essentially replaced Brian Rodriguez when he got sold to LAFC. So here, Peñarol, they, they, they develop uh, Brian Rodriguez and then sell him to LAFC. And then, and then immediately comes another talented teenager. He gets sold to Manchester United now. So Vickery has talked about this as sort of the, the assembly line nature of contemporary South American football, you know, it's sort of in, on display. Um, uh, AC Milan is another club I haven't mentioned the last couple of weeks that's worth noting. Uh, they made a, a couple of really good moves in this window, getting uh, Brahim Diaz and Sandro Tonali, two very good young players, and they're off to a good start in Serie A. So AC Milan is a club that I think is kind of back on track again and heading in the right direction. Uh, but yeah, as far as just big picture of this transfer window, 
if I had to highlight five deals that really caught my attention that I think are, are the five most notable deals of this transfer window, uh, it would be James Rodriguez, who, I mean, has just transformed that club. I mean, that's right now that's looking like the best deal of this whole window. Luis Suarez, and whether Diego Simeone is going to be able to get the most out of him, we'll see. But I still think Atletico Madrid getting Luis Suarez for free from Barcelona is an incredible move for them. Liverpool signing Thiago for the amount they did. I thought it was an absolute bargain and a move they needed to make to kind of freshen up that squad. Uh, I would highlight Timo Werner. Uh, going to Chelsea for, for the amount that he did, you know, he took advantage of a relatively low buyout clause for a player of his caliber. And so getting Werner for the money that I think is a very good move for Chelsea. And then Leroy Sané going to Bayern Munich for the amount that he did. It was roughly 50 million euros, which I know is a lot, but he was worth twice that much the previous summer when they were trying to get him. And then he had that injury. And between that and the pandemic, his value came down and they were able to get a player who, if he stays healthy is going to demolish uh, the Bundesliga this season. So, those would be the five deals if I had to pick them out that really stood out for me. Yeah, but I mean, obviously we're early days, so we don't know how these are these are all going to play out. Uh, going back to the question which had to do with Spurs, and I'll finish it here with you. You mentioned that you thought that keeping Deli Alli was a good thing. What in your mind says that other than there wasn't a good deal to be had? Why doesn't Deli Alli just become the next? Metzeruzel type of uh, situation. I think, you know, there was so, so much hype around him that because he's fallen short of that hype, we tend to look at him with dis feel disappointment, but he's still a good player that's worth keeping around and having in the mix and on his day can still help you win games. So, uh, you know, unless you got a really appealing offer for him, I, I still think keeping him around it, it was, was the smart move for Tottenham. Um, so, yeah, like, you know, just even from depth purposes. So, yeah, like, like I said, I think Mourinho now has – a really, really nice squad at his disposal. And, and just to put a ribbon on all this, uh, I mentioned James Rodriguez and Everton and that perhaps being the, the, the best move of this whole transfer window anybody made. Uh, they now play this upcoming weekend, Liverpool, which is the marquee game in the Premier League. So I can't wait. That's going to be the, the, the acid test for James and, and you know, let's see if he can lift uh, Everton to a win over Liverpool, which those have been hard to come by in the last uh, <laughs> several nice. years. Nice. All right, we got one more, right? Yep. All right, what do you got? Uh, we'll end on this. Uh, the Smiths, 1986. Uh, we've seen an influx of American players hit European leagues. Do you expect managers to soon follow suit? No. Uh, I think that at this moment, that's still a bridge too far. You know, I think when I, and I mentioned uh, Jesse Marsh earlier in the pod, when you look at Jesse Marsh, uh, you know, his path is, is unique and different and special and you know, he has an opportunity that others don't because of the Red Bull Association. And look, I, that, that's great. Just in the same way that I, that I said, good for Ben Olsen to using what it's, it, it, it's his, is at his, his disposal. In the same way, Jesse Marsh getting into that system and parlaying it and using within that Red Bull family to find better opportunities. Good, uh, good for you. But you know, as I've said before, somebody not in that Red Bull family that is as good or better than Jesse Marsh might not be able to do that because those opportunities wouldn't be afforded uh, to him or her. So, uh, you know, I, I just don't see, oh, I don't know, someone that isn't connected, you know, someone that that is like, you, you have to go through the international route, which is what Bob Bradley did. Um, and establish your credential through the international route. Or you have to have a, a backdoor type of way, which is what Jesse Marsh did. 
but just straight ahead. And, and by the way, if it were to happen, it would be based on all the things that we've talked about and all of those different advantages uh, and privileges that you may or may not have, connections that you have, associations, friendships that you are accessing, contexts that you are, are accessing. You, uh, you, know, you may have played in, for a team or in a league, and I think that could facilitate something like that. But just the straight coach that you know, came through, I don't know, the college system and then was an assistant coach at an MLS team and then as a head coach at an MLS team. You know, for example, a Greg Vanny, okay? Greg Vanny's a great coach, just happens to be American. I know he's coaching in, in Canada right now uh, for an MLS team, but he's a great coach. But he's not going to be looked at as a great coach in the international market. I'm not talking about international teams. I'm just talking about, about international market. When, when a team in Europe says we have an opening in a normal circumstance you would look at greg vanny and say that's definitely a candidate but i don't think that he is going to garner that type of value and attention that he should and once again that's it's it might not be fair but it's the way the world is and works right now and we're working to change it and change perception and there will be those that are able to break through through whatever means they have at their disposal but I would, I would not expect to see the way that we have seen players do it. I would not expect that to be mirrored in the coaching type of situations, unless, as I said, there are extenuating circumstances and, and differentiating type of circumstances when it comes to the individual coaches that we're talking about. As I said, relationships, context, uh, history. Um, and th that's sometimes all that you have, and that's what you use to gain an advantage out there. And there's nothing wrong with that. As a, you know, as I said with with Ben Olson or any or anybody else, I, I don't begrudge them using those opportunities. I, I've been an, I've been afforded them, and I have used them in my past because of my history, because of my contacts, and because of my because uh, of my connections. And I I don't think people should be vilified for using that. But it does mean that the, the reality is that there are, are those that may be of equal or even better quality that won't get those opportunities because they don't have those advantages. Um, some of them are inherent and some of them are cultivated uh, over time. And so, no, I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I hope so because I think the soccer world uh, – in general, would be would benefit as would those individuals for having those types of experiences. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. We come to the end of yet another State of the Union pod, and at the end uh, of each and every pod, I give you my one for the road. Uh, and this one, it's uh, it's sad on the surface, but it also is um, happy in that it's it's a celebration. Um, and for those uh, that pay attention, and many people did, uh, Eddie Van Halen passed away. Uh, I, for those that know anything about me, um, am heavily involved in music and have been since I was a, a kid. I've played in, I, don't, I can't even remember how many bands, and certainly grew up in the, the 70s and 80s where Van Halen was such a huge part of my music world. When, uh, and, you know, Eddie Van Halen's been sick for a while, so while it shouldn't be a surprise that, that he passed away. It hit me hard. It hit a lot of people harder than I think it would. And I, I, you know, I, I reached out to guitarists that I've had in bands because I know how important he was. And here was an obvious genius and a guitar god who fundamentally changed the way that we think about 
the guitar and that we literally play the guitar. And for if he did nothing else, he would be remembered and revered for that. And yet he did so much more because Eddie Van Halen is so much more than a guitarist for me in the way that I look at Eddie Van Halen. He is first and foremost an incredible songwriter. And um, while he is, you know, one of the architects of one of the greatest rock bands and hard rock bands in history, at his soul, he, he is a pop music producer. And the songs that he produced, um, the reason why they are so memorable, because in their, at their core, they are pop, that everybody can sing. And his pop sensibilities were incredible. Uh, and as incredible as his proficiency and his technique and his innovative way of playing the guitar. And that he was able to meld this sound that we had never heard before into close to perfect pop songs. That's where the genius for me lays with Eddie Van Halen. And, uh, you know, it was, it was sad. As I said, he, he had been sick, so it wasn't necessarily a surprise, but it was still sad nonetheless because I know how important he is, um, how important he was. And when I think back of how important Van Halen was to me and how, how much of a huge part Eddie Van Halen was for that music, um, it fills me with sadness that he's gone, but it also you know, fills me with a, um, an incredible thanks that he left us with this treasure trove of music that will stand the test of time. And, you know, ultimately, in our game of soccer, you know, we throw around the word artist and genius. And, you know, some are worthy of it and, and some aren't. But um, when you find somebody that transcends the art, and whether it's the art of kicking a soccer ball, the art of playing guitar, um, they do it in a way that we've never seen before and that is everlasting and will never be forgotten. And there are very few in the world of soccer that, that live up to that type of definition. And we would put on the pedestal and the equal uh, when it comes to the music world of someone like uh, Eddie Van Halen. And so when those people leave us, it goes without saying that we should take a moment and pause and thank them for everything uh, that they have done and the way that they have changed the way that we love this art, whether this art is a sport or whether this art is something uh, like music. So thank you, Eddie Van Halen, for everything that you have done uh, and for the way that you have changed the way that we listen, the way that we play um, music. And uh, with that, Mossy, I will say thank you. Anything to add before we go? Nope. Thank you so much to everybody out there for listening and reviewing and rating. Uh, I know we continue to go long. <laughs> uh, there, there is no time in 2020. Um, so please forgive us if, if it is irritating to you. Uh, but this is, you know, this is, this is something that we're, we're trying to work on. But, you know, we get talking and we, we, we want to continue to talk about the, these things. So if you've had to cut off, then you're not listening to this anyway. If you have made it through to the end here, congratulations to making it through yet another longer-ish type of uh, podcast. And we hope that you continue to come back. And this does not deter you from listening to uh, future episodes of the State of the Union. Continue to write, rate, review, subscribe, download, do all those things that uh, we love you doing. Uh, we will talk again next week. We will see you again next week. And until that time size the day.